Okay, we are going to be in Genesis 32 today. If you want to turn there, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's like one of the most outlandish, crazy stories, but I absolutely love it. Um, so if you want to turn there, you know, we're continuing our series on the names of God, um, focusing on his names and how he reveals himself through them. This morning is going to be a little bit unique because we're not actually going to learn a name of God. We're going to learn the name of a place that somebody gave a name to after an encounter with God. Kind of like Hagar. Remember when Hagar had that encounter with God? El Roi, the God who sees, and then she named that, that well. That's the place where I met the God who sees me. Um, it's going to be kind of giving a place name to a geographical spot. And the theme of the story and what I want to talk about this morning is this idea of the place of, the str- of struggle in the spiritual life. Um, and so why talk about spiritual struggle? struggle? Why is this important? Um, I think two things. I think because number one of the reality of the struggle, that all of us struggle at times spiritually, right? The reality of it. And because I think of the confusion we have over the struggle. Um, first, the reality. The truth is we all struggle at various times in various ways throughout our spiritual life. That's just the reality um, that we all deal with. It doesn't always come easy, um, but that's just kind of where we are. It's true for you and me. And then secondly, because of the confusion I think that gets generated. What I have found is I've talked to people, and this is part of the reason I'm, I'm actually wanting to do this text um, over the years, when you talk to people about their spiritual lives, there come to be some universal things that just keep coming up that people want to talk about. And one of the big ones I have found is this idea of the struggle with God. And that when people struggle with God, they tend to make two conclusions, uh, either a conclusion about themselves or a conclusion about God. The conclusion about themselves like, what's wrong with me? Why am I struggling? What's wrong with my faith? Or a conclusion about God, what's wrong with him? I mean, isn't he supposed to change and transform me? Like, is he not what he says to be? He is, or it can be both. I struggle with who I am, I wrestle with who I am, and with God. And just that question, like, why do I struggle with my sin? Why do I struggle with doubts? Why is it that I struggle so much with God? And so I want to, I want to speak into that. Um, and partly, I want to talk about why I think that's the reality. And I want to do that before we get to the story. I want to talk about part, this, again, that word's important, part of the reason we struggle with our struggle. Because the truth is, I think we all struggle with the struggle, and I want to talk about part of the reason that is, um, and it really has to do with the theological backstory to evangelicalism in America. Um, a large part of our theological roots trace back to the revivals and the revivalism of, last, of the 18, mid-1800s. Um, and there was great revival spreading on the frontier of America, and it was, really, it was led by a lot of circuit-riding preachers who were taking the gospel all through the through the frontier, and a lot of those circuit-riding preachers were actually uh, Methodist, came from a Methodist background, had been influenced by Methodism and John Wesley, um, a very significant figure in church history, and his influence was really profound. And among other things, he not only started Methodism, but he started what was called the Holiness Movement, and tied really closely to the Wesleyan Movement, and the Holiness Movement was what was called the the Keswick Movement. Um, and you don't need to look into all this stuff, but essentially, um, they taught that entire sanctification was possible in this life, entire sanctification, that um, a person could actually attain to spiritual perfection before death. 
Charles Finney, who was the main revival speaker at that time and one of the main leaders of that movement, he wrote this in his systematic theology. Those who were saved may habitually live without sin and fall into sin only at intervals so few and far between that in strong language it may be said in truth that they do not sin. Now, I don't know about you, that does not describe my life very well. I don't know about you. Um, and this became known as the higher life movement, and a core tenant of their theology, what was called the second blessing, that they believed that salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit, but you would not really have the power to live a truly victorious life until you had a second encounter with the Holy Spirit, maybe a baptism of the Spirit. Some other groups took the second blessing and added that concept, but unless you had that kind of encounter, a second encounter with the Spirit, you could not really live the victorious Christian life. Um, and though a lot of evan people in evangelicalism don't fully believe this and buy into it totally um, to this idea, it has affected evangelicalism a lot, even if I don't believe that. It has generated in American evangelicalism this kind of desire or a sense that I should be able to attain spiritual perfection in this life. And then when I don't, when I struggle, I struggle with the struggle. Does that make sense? I struggle with the struggle. And there's this pressure, I think, that's been generated from this movement um, that, that if I'm struggling, then there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with God, that there's something that's, that's not right, okay? So, I want to look in Genesis 32. I want to look at the story of a man who struggles with God, and I want to take this and I want to try to apply it to the spiritual life. So, chapter 32, and we're going to encounter again what, to me, what's one of the greatest stories of all time. It's the story of Jacob and an encounter with God that he has. Um, a little bit of setup. If you're here and you don't know the Bible well, Jacob is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, the one God called Abraham and said, I'm going to create a nation from you to bless all nations. So Jacob is the son of Isaac. He's, he's the son of promise. Um, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first. They were actually twins. Jacob came second, um, but he came fast on his heels, literally. He came out clutching onto his heel, if you know the story. And because of that, his parents named him, in Hebrew, it's Yaakob, Yaakob. And Yaakob means a grasper or a usurper. It's a person who seizes and seeks to supplant another. But it also carries with it the idea of somebody that's a schemer, a trickster, a manipulator, a deceiver, and a liar. That's a great name, right? Thanks, Mom and Dad. I get to carry that around all my life. Um, so his name means one who usurps others through deception. And actually, if you know his life, that was the reality of his life, right? Um, he tricks his brother out of his birthright in Genesis 25. In Genesis 27, he tricks his father into giving him the blessing that was, should have gone in their culture to the firstborn son. So he tricks him into getting that blessing. And at that, Esau, his brother, became so angry that he decided to kill Jacob. And his mom, Rebecca, found out, and so she said, I, you need to flee, you need to hightail it out of here. So she sent him home to where she was from, which was Haran. Um, and her brother, Laban, was living there, so he fled. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but he ended up spending 20 years there, married two different women, um, grew into quite a large family, and gained a lot of wealth. 
And then in Genesis 31.3, the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. And so we come to Genesis chapter 22. So I want to start reading in verse 1. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. Wow. So he named that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. There's my camp, and then there's this, God, this camp of, last week we did Yahweh Tzaboth, right? The Lord of heaven's armies. Like here he is showing up again, unveiling a spiritual reality that we frequently don't see. Like I'm, I told you I'm with you. Here are these angels that are camping out with you. So pretty cool. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. In the land of Seir, the country of Edom, he instructed them, this is what you're to say to my Lord Esau, your servant, Jacob, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. Um, It's interesting in this story, three times he calls Esau, my Lord, he calls himself your servant. We're going to see four times the mention of gifts that he brought. He's trying to ingratiate himself to his brother because he's really afraid of revenge and that maybe his brother still wants to kill him. So verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you and your 400, and 400 men are with him. And we know what that means, right? This is not a welcoming party, right? That's not what's going on. So verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. We're going to see in a minute, he divided his livestock into five herds. But verse 8, he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan. And he doesn't mean his church staff, okay? A walking stick. I only had a walking stick when I crossed the Jordan. But now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid he will come and attack me. And also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. And um, essentially, the next few verses, I'm probably not going to do 1720, but he, then he instructs after the prayer, he gets up, he instructs his men, divides his, all of his livestock into five herds, like sheep, donkeys, cows, camels. Um, he divides them all up, sends them kind of in waves, offering them as gifts to him. And then verse 21, it says, so Jacob's gifts went ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up, you know, in Hebrew, Yaakob got up, took his two wives, two female servants, his 11 sons, crossed the ford of the Yabak, it's a really similar sounding name, the ford of the Jabak. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. Okay, here's a map that shows you the Jabbok River. It's located in modern Jordan. It's to the east of the Jordan, and it, it pours its waters into the Jordan. Um, as you can see here on the left, he's coming from the north. Esau is coming from the south, from Edom. And they both would have taken the King's Highway. I don't know how well you can see the King's Highway here. That's what they were taking. 
both taking that road. Once Jacob hit the Jabbok, he, his plan, and he headed west because Shechem is where he was eventually going. Um, I kind of saw this river as a dry, arid, arid, arid area. I'm not sure why. Um, but that's the location of the Mahanaim and the Peniel is right there. This is what that area looks like, a lot different than I expected. But at this point in the story, he sends everybody across to the south side of the river, but he stays alone on the north. So look at verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. He was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. That word wrestled in Hebrew means to get dirty in wrestling. I mean, this is serious wrestling, okay? So I want you, can you imagine this? He stays alone. He's bedding down, getting in his sleeping bag. It's night. All of a sudden, a man comes up from behind and attacks him, right, and starts wrestling with him. Who do you think he's probably imagining this is? Yeah, Esau. Maybe Esau outflanked everybody. Or Esau sent an assassin. But whatever it is, he wrestles with him all night, all night long, trying to gain an advantage, I think, so he can escape and live. Um, Many artists over the years have depicted this, and wrongly depicting it as a tussle with angels. We've talked about that before. The angel of the Lord, wrongly depicted as an angel. Um, These are some of the pictures. It's always an angel in the paintings. I mean, look at this one. That angel looks like he's not even trying, right? (laughs) I've got this kind of funny... Sorry, this is my personality coming out. Look at this one, like a smack in the forehead. That's like a Three Stooges thing. This one looks like a dating scene. That doesn't look to me like wrestling at all. This is better. Um, I think that's a lot more like it. Um, This is like kung fu. (laughs) Somebody made a sculpture. That's pretty serious. This one I like a lot. I think that really depicts to me what's going on. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Um, I've had a dislocation twice. I've had a finger dislocated and a toe dislocated, and it's painful. I have never had a major joint. I have heard that to dislocate your shoulder is agonizing. That's what I've heard. Um, the, the hip joint is the largest joint in the human body with, with many ligaments and muscles protecting it. That must have been excruciating, Right? And all of that from just the slightest of touches. So verse 26, then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. And Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face. Man, he's really downplaying this. I wrestled God face to face, and yet my life was spared. That Peniel, El is the word for, short for Elohim, the word for God, right? Penny is face, so the face of God is what Peniel means, the face of God. Verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. What a story, huh? What a story. I want to I delve into a couple things. The, the most important part to me is verses 24 to 30, specifically verse 30, where Jacob called the place Peniel. 
And he said, I saw God face to face. Now, we know he's correct because in the book of Hosea, it says, in the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel or the angel of the Lord and overcame him. But what made, what made him conclude it was God? Well, it was that touch, right? He wrestled with him all night, but that touch totally dislocated um, his hip. Do you remember a few weeks back we talked about the angel of the Lord met Elijah as he was running in despair from Jezebel and how he cooked a meal and he touched him? That was a different kind of touch. This was a light touch, but this light touch like devastated. Um, it was almost like a devastating blow. It devastated his hip joint. And that's when his eyes were open and Jacob's like, this man I wrestled all night, this was not a human. This was actually God. So if it's God, why does it say he could not overpower him all night? Because it says that in the text. Um, we know that's not the reality because of that touch, and I'm going to come back to that touch in just a second. Um, well, let me say about that touch. What's really interesting in the Hebrew, it's, the word means a very slight touch, like barely making contact, like he just barely touches him, and his whole hip goes out of joint. And because of that, that's how he knew this was more than just um, than a human. So why, why that he couldn't overcome him language? Um, I mean, all the dads here, I think you've wrestled with your children, Right? What dad doesn't love doing that? Or dog, having the kids dogpile on you? Nellie was dogpiling on me for the first time Friday. It was kind of fun. But anytime you wrestle your kids as a dad, you don't bear your, bring your full weight upon them, right? If you, get on, if you jump on them, aren't you, you're, you're actually keeping your weight off of them. Um, if you're wrestling with them, you're not bringing your full strength to bear. You will actually let them overcome you and win the battle, um, you restrain yourself, you actually take on weakness, assume a position of weakness as a father when you could easily win the battle. I mean, that's what God did is he assumed this position of weakness. I could do a whole sermon on that. He could have crushed Jacob, could he not? We know because a simple touch wrecked, his whole, wrecked a whole joint. And despite the injury of that touch, what I love about Jacob is he still hangs on and he asks God for a blessing. And Hosea tells us, that he wept and begged for that blessing. He was really, he was brought to a place of, I think, brokenness and humility. And he, he wanted so badly the blessing God had given Adam and Eve at creation, the blessing he had given Abraham, the blessing he had given Isaac. He's like, I want you to bless me. But before blessing him, God does something really significant in verse 27. Before blessing him, he says, what's your name? And Jacob answers, and in answer, that question, he's speaking the reality of his life. Remember to us, a name is like just a label. When we read this story, we just hear, what's your name? We just hear Jacob. Oh, yeah, that's the label the guy wears. That's not what it was in the conversation. When he answers, what he said was, I'm the one who usurps others to overcome them through deception. That's who I am. I'm a conniver. I'm a deceiver, I'm a manipulator, I will do anything to get the upper hand in a relationship. Because that's what he had been his whole life. And I'm sure when he said his name, and he said that, he hung his head in shame. Because of the reality of who he was, and that that name was who he was. But what I love is God didn't leave him there. God had come so Jacob could have a personal encounter, a life-changing encounter with him, and so God changed his name to Israel, which means struggles with God. Struggles with God is now your name. 
And he got up from that encounter a changed man. A lot of commentators believe this is when he met God personally. And so he was a changed man. But I want you to know if you read the rest of his story, he continued to struggle with God. And there was a whole people named after him, the Israelites, Israel, to struggle with God. And their whole history was a history of struggling with God. If you know the Old Testament, some of you are reading through the Old Testament second year in that. If you read that, you know they continually struggled with God, continually, continually. And we, even though we have been saved from our sin and we've been given the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to transform us, we struggle with sin. Is that not right? We struggle with sin. I mean, who doesn't understand Paul's words in Romans 7, 15 and 16, 18 and 19? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Does that not resonate with your soul that I struggle with God, that I struggle? You know, I'm going to come back to that whole entire sanctification, the holiness movement stuff. There's a number of, to me, biblical problems with it, but the big problem is this, is that if you believe this thing about entire sanctification, um, to me, this, this belief system does not live in the reality that we talked about last week. Remember when we talked about this? The already and the not yet. That we live in this time between the times when Jesus came and fully defeated Satan and evil at the cross. He decisively defeated evil, but will not fully defeat until he returns, right? We live in this unique period when the corruption of the world is still, we're living with it, not just in the world, it is in our own soul, and yet the kingdom has come in and broken in, and we've got the Spirit of God, but there's this mixture, right? We live in this already but not yet reality of the world. And yes, we have the Spirit of God who lives in us to transform us, but we also have that old man, the flesh, that is still in there that's battling, doing war. And until Jesus comes or we die and meet Him, we will not be fully redeemed and fully set free from, from our sin until that moment, right? Does that make sense? Listen to the book of Hebrews. Oh, and so, uh, listen to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. I'm just going to read verses 3 and 4 where he says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle with sin. We will struggle with sin, with doubt, with God. It is the reality of the spiritual life in this time that we live in, this already but not yet. That's why in 1 Peter 2.11, he says that the flesh, the sinful desires, they wage war against our soul. Paul in Galatians 5.17 says that the spirit of God and the flesh that we have, that they're continually in conflict with one another, okay? This is the struggle. And don't you just feel that reality in the bones of your heart? Do you not feel the reality? Like last year, Jordan and I talked about spiritual drift, And how easy it is to spiritually drift. Do you not feel that? Like in the words of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Currently reading Rebecca McLaughlin's apologetic book called Confronting Christianity. And in it she writes something Jacob could have written and I could have written and you could have written. I struggle denying myself 
taking up my cross, believing that Jesus is my entire life. And yet every day I find the the fingerprints of this impossible man in my life calling me into a story so much greater and more exhilarating than my own little life could ever be. I really love that. I mean, I've said this before, but we, all of us, if you are a true disciple of Jesus, a true apprentice of him, all of us are stumbling towards him, right? All of us are stumbling towards him. It's three steps forward, it's two steps back. I've been doing this thing with Jesus for, I I can't, I'm too old to do the math, for a long time, okay, since I was a teenager, and it still is that way. I'm trying, I'm moving towards him, but many times I stumble. So here's what I'm really kind of wanting us to leave with. The next time you stumble and fall or you encounter the struggle, um, rather than sinking into despair, which is easy to do, just hang on to him, wrestle with him, let him take you into the dirt, cling to him, hang on to him, lean into him, okay? Knowing that that's just part of what we deal with. Okay, in a minute, I'm going to have somebody come up. In fact, I'm going to, you can go ahead and come up now. You can. Nathan, Lee, I want you to come on up. We're going to have a, a brief conversation. I want to turn corners, not even turn corners, just for a minute. I want to focus. You can have this one, sir. And grab that mic, this one over there, uh, the far one. Thank you, sir. I get the one with the book because I need to hide that from you. That's a, a gift for later. Um, I want to talk about doubts for just a minute, and we're going to talk about doubt, okay? Because anytime I talk to people that are struggling with doubt, which you have a lot of those conversations in ministry, doubts frequently are devastating to people. They're devastating that they have them. And they're a sign of weakness or maybe even a non-existent faith, and I think because of this spirituality of perfection that I've talked about, that we've kind of inherited from the revivalism, it makes people feel a lot of shame, and so they take their doubt and they hide it, right? Because we can't let anybody know we struggle in the spiritual life, right? And so we hide it and we kind of bury that thing. And I've seen so many people, when they get in doubts, because of that reality, they spiral more and more downward emotionally and spiritually because of, I think, this false idea that the spiritual life is a life without struggle. So before I talk to him, I just want to deconstruct the idea that doubt is bad. Can I just do that for a minute? I've got a ton of quotes on this. In fact, we've got a sheet you can grab on the way out on the information booth if you want those. But one of my favorites is this, doubt is faith seeking answers. Is that not a good statement? Doubt is faith seeking answers. And over the years, here's what I found, that people who have legitimate questions, who have legitimate questions, that that to me is a sign that they're actually engaged with God that they're in the struggle with God, that they're wrestling with God. Um, tight hand-to-hand combat, right? And the, to me, that, those doubts, those questions are not a bad thing. And here's why. Because the opposite of love, it's not hate. We've, I've talked about this a lot. The opposite of love is indifference. And people who are indifferent to God don't wrestle with God. Do you understand that? So when somebody has doubts and questions, what that tells me is, is they have this passion and care for him and, and all of that, and they've entered into that. So, um, so I'm going to jump in with Nathan for a minute. He's going to start, and Nathan, just tell us um, 
your story, and then you've got a few things that you learned through your own struggle with doubt that um, I'd like you to share with us. So jump in, sir. Well, if you were here last October, you might have heard my story at my uh, baptism, but I'll just kind of keep it brief for today. So I, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was a youth pastor, so I was very familiar with the Bible and church life. Um, I remember having a sense that there was a God out there who was involved with my family. I didn't know fully what that looked like, but I just kind of had that, that belief. Um, it wasn't until I was about, I think, eight years old when I asked Jesus to be my Savior. And then uh, when I was 12 years old is when I really started pursuing uh, Jesus with intent, trying to understand what does my faith actually mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? But interestingly, uh, at that same time, I started dealing with these really difficult questions, uh, just like kind of all at once. Um, questions like, how do I actually know that there is a God? Is it is there actually a God or is it just my imagination or my feelings? Um, how do I know that the Bible is the true word of God? Um, how do I know that uh, the other faiths in the world aren't the true faith and mine is the false one? I never dealt with these questions before, and so um, I was kind of scared. I didn't know how to answer them, and I wondered if I don't know how to answer, how can I be confident? And so that um, propelled me into a lot of doubt. Um, and I, I remember I spoke with my dad about these doubts one night, um, just helping to have some, to receive some help from him. And instead of uh, showing me the mercy I was looking for, he was frustrated because he wondered uh, why, why would I be struggling with doubt after all that I've been given, after all the, all the church life that I've been a part of. And that, uh, that just really discouraged me. And it led me to keep my doubts hidden, like you said. And I basically tried to look for the answers to these questions on my own for about three years. And that, that, was, that was exhausting <laughs> and such a burden. I, I did find some good resources through that, but, uh, man, it's not good to walk through that alone. Yeah. Um, but I should mention, Jesus did help me to reconcile that relationship with my dad. I was able to talk with him and forgive him for my heart, and we had closure. And he's actually the one who baptized me, so praise Jesus for that. Um, but even in the midst of my doubt, Jesus helped me to pray somehow. Uh, sometimes it felt like I'd never be free and that God just would stay silent the whole time. But I kept praying, wondering if he would do something, but still hoping that he would. Somehow it gave me the, the courage to keep praying through the Holy Spirit. And uh, over time, through apologetics, through messages from church and from friends and teachers, uh, through the Bible, most importantly, I, I was encouraged little by little to see that Jesus really is true, that um, the Christian faith is worth believing, and it's, uh, I can be confident in it. Mm. And I was even fortunate to see some miracles in my friends' lives, which were really encouraging. Yeah. And Jesus showed me that he is with me in my doubt, that he loves me in my doubt, and he showed me mercy and encouraged me. I just continue to seek him with uh, firmer confidence. Yeah, that's great. Um, I loved your story of baptism. That's when I took note even then as we kind of talked through that. I'm like, I've got to have this guy on the stage at some point. You through that have come up with like some pointers, some tips, some things that helped you in your struggle with doubt. And I want to, yeah, so that was you, man. Look at that. That's pretty cool. Um, I want to, I thought I had a slide of those things. Okay, I don't. Never mind. Just listen, take notes, okay? The first one is, well, you run, I mean, the first one is bring your doubts to Jesus because he won't turn you away. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, that's something that I, it took me a long time to realize. I think because of how my dad responded to me, I kind of saw, thought that God would feel the same toward me. So I felt like I needed to get my doubts fixed before I came to Jesus. But uh, I was greatly encouraged in, uh, in college by the story of John the Baptist when he was in prison. John, you know, John the Baptist, he's like one of the most crazy spiritual guys ever. <laughs> like he said, I saw the spirit descend on Jesus. He's the one. He's the Lamb of God. And when he was in prison, uh, suddenly he sends these two disciples of his to Jesus asking if he is the one. And you say, think, well, John, what in the world happened? Uh, I thought you were saying that he was the one. What's going on? But he, instead of keeping that doubt to himself, he sent his disciples to Jesus to get an answer. Yep. And Jesus did not turn him away. Yeah. He showed him who he was by healing people and reminding him that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies. Yeah. So stay engaged with him. I mean, that's what happened with Thomas when Thomas had doubts. Jesus showed up and answered his questions. So you're saying stay engaged with Jesus um, because he won't turn you away. And engaged in what, like, what, being in the Word, you talked about that. Yes. Still praying, even though you said sometimes you didn't even know if there was even a God to hear you, but you just, you just try, stayed engaged, right, with Him. Okay, your second thing. Do you mind if I, I might let you, you you're good, you've got Him. Okay. What, what was your second one? Yeah, the second tip is remember that you're not alone in your struggle, because followers of Christ throughout history have struggled with doubt. You're not the only one. Yeah, you're not alone. Okay. That's what I'm trying to say this morning. The spiritual life is a struggle. Okay, You're not alone. Just this week, Barna put out a new results of a survey they did among evangelical Christians like us. And here's what they found about doubt. Exactly half of those who are evangelical Christian, half, 50% say they have gone through a prolonged period of doubt at some time in their spiritual journey. 50%. So you're not alone. So, and that's good to know. Third one. Third one is share your doubts with a trusted friend or mentor in the church because doubt grows in isolation. Yeah. I really love that. Say that again. I mean, I made that in bold and red on my sheet. That doubt, that yeah. doubt grows in isolation. Yeah. You should write a book because <laughs> he's going to say something else profound in the next one. I mean, think about that. Is that not true? Doubt grows in isolation. Does not the struggle increase in isolation? I mean, we need the community, so share it with a trusted friend, friend um, or mentor. And there were some people, I assume, that helped walk you through that. Yeah, one of my uh, best friends, his name is Ben. Um, I, I think after the three years of trying to find the answers on my own, I realized I can't do this by myself anymore. And I came to him, and he was just, he was so gracious. He listened to my struggles, he prayed for me, and gave me encouragement, and that really helped me to open up to other people yeah. as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Fourth one. Fourth one. Uh, this is a big one. Get specific with your doubts because doubt also grows in ambiguity. Say that again because I love that. Doubt grows in ambiguity. So doubt grows in isolation. Doubt grows in ambiguity. Um, so how did, you, how did you get specific with your doubt? You took up a practice I think is really cool. I think I've told this to some people already, but uh, the practice that I kind of discovered is um, I call it dialoguing with your doubts. So write out what your doubt is and then respond to it with a scripture or with a question that you have and just kind of do a conversation back and forth with doubt because that helps you to realize what's the underlying question that you're dealing with. What is the one thing that you're struggling with you want to figure out? Because when you don't do that, it's, doubt's vague and it's kind of swirling around your head. You don't know 
uh, how to tackle it. Yeah. And it feels more unmanageable. Yeah. And so that helped you to really pinpoint what to you were the key questions. Yes. Then you were able to really tackle those things individually. And then what was your fifth, your fifth one? Fifth one. Uh, start asking questions and do research and look for answers. Yeah, look for answers. <laughs> and yeah, so to you that looked like what? what you just reading different things or what did that look like? Yeah, I looked up apologetics resources. Like uh, I think we have a list of that somewhere, uh-huh. but um, answers in Genesis for scientific issues. Uh, look in your ministries. Um, uh, yeah, there's a, yeah. In fact, we, he and I sat down and kind of wrote down for him what were the key things that helped him with his doubts, some things that were, have, were helpful for me in my coming to Christ. Or, and so we've got a, on the back is this resource list of some different categories of places people might doubt, some quotes on doubt. So we wanted you, if you want that, you can leave with that. But you asked and you looked... Uh, you, looked, you, look, you questioned and you looked for answers. I love that. To me, you were like Jacob. You wrestled with it. You wrestled with God. You hung on. You were tenacious. You fought. Um, and through that, you took ownership of your faith and really made it your own, right? I wish I could say that I fought the whole time, but it was, it was a struggle. <laughs> yeah, and it was a struggle. Um, but to me, that's what Jacob's story is all about, is that, uh, that it can be a struggle at times, but I just need to stay engaged. So give us a quick summary of your five points, quick summary of those five. So bring your doubts to Jesus because he wants to help you. He's not going to turn you away. Remember that you're not alone in your struggle. So many Christians struggle with doubt. Share your doubts with a trusted friend or mentor in the church because doubt grows in isolation. Get specific with your doubts because doubt grows in ambiguity. And ask questions, do research, look for the answers. Yeah, isn't that great? Can we thank Nathan for coming up here. It's not easy coming up here and sharing his story. Brother, great job. Yeah, good job. Yeah, you can put that back. Yeah, I just, I could, I could probably bring a dozen people up here who could share similar stories, okay? Because um, I really do believe that in this time between the times, in this Life we're living in the already and the not yet, struggle is normal. Struggle is normal, okay? Can I say that again? Struggle is normal. So if you struggle sometimes or you're struggling today and you feel like, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with God, I would say probably nothing. Struggle is normal, okay? And here's what I want you to know, even maybe more important, God is not afraid of the struggle. He's not afraid of your struggle. He's not afraid of it. Just ask Jacob, just ask David. God is more than willing to let you wrestle with him. Hand-to-hand combat, right? Um, Throw for throw, move for move. He wants to engage you in that if you will let him. So that's why I love your point. Let him do that. Like, involve him in that struggle. Um, Andrew Greeley said this most cool thing. If one wishes to eliminate uncertainty, tension, confusion, and disorder from one's life, there's no point in getting mixed up with either Yahweh or with Jesus of Nazareth. Is that not good? Is that not good? That is, look at this God that we serve. 
This God, I mean, who shows up in human flesh, shows up at night, attacks a guy from behind, wrestles all night with him, just with a touch dislodges his hip. I mean, what kind of God is this? Is he not an amazing God? He is the God that C.S. Lewis says that he is not a tame lion, right? He is not a tame lion. And then that same book, he says, he is not safe, but he is what? He is good. He is good. So stay engaged. Keep wrestling. Just be tenacious with God in the midst of the struggle, okay? Be tenacious with Him. And when you face a struggle, because you will, if you're in it now, if you're, gonna, you're, gonna, if you're, if you're not, it will, it'll be tomorrow, it'll be next week, it'll be next month, right? It's around the corner. But know that He's with you in that struggle, that He wants to do it penny L, face-to-face with you. That's why I love this name, face-to-face, the face of God. He wants to engage me in that. And through that, He is wanting and longing through the struggle to reveal Himself to me more and more, for, to reveal even more and more of who I am to myself, and through that struggle to bring His blessing upon me. That's His long-term desire. So here's my plea that I finish with. Let us quit striving so relentlessly to have a spirituality of perfection that is not possible in this life until we meet Jesus, okay? Look, can we just quit striving so hard, a striving that I, feel, I know in my own life, for all of us, it leaves you feeling defeated, and it actually works against what the Spirit of God is trying to do in your life. Does that make sense? So that's my call. Twelfth, let's, let's quit striving so hard against the struggle. Yes, we want to walk with God. Yes, we want to abide in Him. Yes, we want His fruit born out in our life. But God also knows there's going to be a struggle, and He's like, just lean into me, lean into me. And that's my, that's my, that's my plea. Let us lean into the struggle and to the God who is pursuing us in the midst of struggle. Can we do that, 12? Can we be that kind of people? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, just for so much of the reality of Scripture, for stories of people's struggles and their wrestling with you and how that's a metaphor of my own faith and my own life, that as long as I'm in this flesh before I meet you, that that's what is going to be. And so, Lord, just help us to, uh, to keep pursuing you, keep wanting to know you, even in the midst of the stumbles and all of that. So, um, I just thank you for your goodness and that you're a God who, who's not a tame lion and who is not safe, but who is good. And we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, the one who showed up and got dirty wrestling with a man all night to bless him. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, 12th, you are sent uh, into the struggle, okay? But you have God with you, so, and God be with you.